Cabernet tends to be the sort of Errol Flynn of the great varieties. The most expensive beer in history. People will turn around to me and say, oh, I'm just making gin while I wait for my whiskey to get ready. Because wine is an adventure. Conventional winemakers who just condemn all natural wine as faulty. The prestigious title of Saki Samurai. Looking at whiskey in more of an artful culinary way. They kind of look at it as a novelty more than anything. The guy from the rock bands is making wine. This is the Drinks Adventures podcast. I'm James Atkinson, and this is the show where I speak to some of the world's most exciting producers of beer, wine, and spirits, and uncover trends and issues in the drinks industry today. Caroline Childerly launched the Gin Queen website in December 2013 to share her enthusiasm for gin and the people who make it. The website has since expanded to include cocktail recipes, interviews with distillers, and distillery guides. It is now Australia's most influential website dedicated to all things gin. And last year, Caroline's efforts were recognised at the Icons of Gin Awards in London, where she was named Communicator of the Year. In this episode, Caroline shares with you her insights on the evolution of gin in Australia and her top 10 Australian gins of 2020. But first, you'll hear how Caroline turned her passion for gin into a career. And that's coming up in just a moment. What I love about Australian craft spirits is that our distillers are truly free to experiment. We aren't governed by rules and traditions. That's why the flavour and character of Australian spirits is so unique. But it takes distilling prowess and another critical ingredient to bring these products to market. And that ingredient is Bintani. Bintani supplies distillers with malts of all colours, flavours and aromas. They have a leading range of yeast and other ingredients and the professional expertise to help distillers create the spirits of their dreams. Make Bintani your partner in taste and quality. It's all kind of circumstance and just going for it, I guess. I was introduced to gin quite a while ago, a long time ago, um, by a family friend. um, And it was just something that I really associated with her. Um, And it was always, you know, something we sat down and drank together whenever we caught up. And then obviously you can tell from my accent that I'm not Australian. So um, I was living in the UK, where I'm from, and we emigrated in 2011. And I'd never been to Australia before, so obviously was anticipating, you know, kangaroos bouncing down the street. And I wanted to learn as much as I could about, you know, my new home. And one of the things I wanted to see if there were any Australian gins. So my investigation started... I had a look around and I think I found about six sort of readily available that I didn't have to look too hard to find. And I was, you know, really intrigued. I really enjoyed them. And I started sort of talking to friends um, about it and sort of, you know, advocating for them. And I think I got a bit of a, not a rep with my friends, but, you know, they were kind of like, look, you're so passionate about this. Why don't you start writing about gin, not just Australian gin, but all gins. Um, And I thought, okay, so, you know, didn't really think much of it and um, launched the website in 2013 and sort of in good favour really that week because it was the same week that Four Pillars launched their rare dry gin. So I don't know whether that's kind of, you know, a good omen. And then I think I, I was asked to host an event the following February and it kind of just blew up from there really. I did an event with Cam from Four Pillars, uh, Bob Lang, um, who's since passed on, but Bob Lang from Bass and Flinders, Jason from West Winds, 
and Andrew from Melbourne Gin Company. Um, so they were there right from the beginning and we hosted a gin tasting event. And I think everyone who was there was just super surprised, A, that we made gin and B, that it was so good. And really everything from there has just snowballed, being in the right place at the right time, right at the centre of the, you know, the gin renaissance in Australia um, and seeing how it's exploded in the last seven years. And probably working really hard as well. I mean, uh, no one's ever going to give us any sympathy being drinks writers or drinks ambassadors, whatever whatever it is. But, um, you know, there's a lot of work I can see that's gone into your website and quite a lot of research. You did that study a little while ago where you figured out how many distilleries there are in Australia making gin and how many individual gins there are. My ISO project, you have to do something uh, when you're in <laughs> lockdown, James. And, and that was something that, you know, I'd been asked a few times on, you know, in interviews, you know, just how many gins are there? Um, and I roughly knew the figure globally, but I was interested to see where we were at in terms of Australian gins. So I did laboriously sit down, go through millions of websites and, you know, individually checked what was in everybody's range. And when you first emailed me, you said, oh, you know, is it about 600? And since then, since I did it in, I started it in March, uh, we're now at 700, roughly 700. That's individual gin, you know, gin products. So whether you've got a bloody Shiraz or you've got, you know, a desert gin or anything, I've looked at the individual uh, gins in each distiller's range. And there's roughly about 200 producers of gin they might not necessarily be specific gin producers. They might produce vodka and whiskey and everything else, but that's the number of gin producers. When you think back to when you started and you mentioned you could have just about counted on one hand the number of distilleries that there were back then. I mean, it's just, it's kind of hard to get your head around. And I think probably it is too much for consumers to get their, their heads around, really, isn't it? The number of different distilleries that there are out there. One thing that I've always said is that, you know, there, there is room for everybody and some people will argue that that's not the case. But I think what I try to remember is that not everybody is trying to be a global, you know, a global sensation. And I think one of the great things about Australian gin distillers is what they do for, you know, the local tourism um, and the local economy, you know, whether they're employing people locally or whether they are, you know, bringing people into the region. I think um, consumers are much more educated than we give them credit for. Obviously, I run Junipalooza and we've been, you know, doing that for several years now. And roughly we get, you know, sort of 4,000 people through the doors uh, over the weekend. And every distiller says to me afterwards, you know, they're so knowledgeable. They want to know where it's made. They want to know how it's made. Um, so people really buy into the individual gin distiller's story. So that's the first thing. The second thing is people love it when they can go and visit friends and say, this is a gin that's made in my town, or this is a gin that's, you know, made just up the road from me, or this is a gin uh, made by somebody that I met. And I think people do um, buy into those stories and buy into those, um, you know, into those brands for that reason. Do you kind of favour producers that are, making gin and focusing on making gin as opposed to, you know, obviously there are quite a lot of whiskey distillers that are making gin and it, it is probably more to do with the convenience of having something to sell while they're waiting for their whiskey to come of age. Yeah, I mean, it is <laughs> it is a different conversation. You know, when, when 
you know, people will turn around to me and say, oh, I'm just making gin while I wait for my whiskey to get ready. And, you you know, I kind of get a bit sad about that because I'm like, well, you, um, you know, you're missing a, missing a trick there because it's, it's just such a wonderful spirit. Uh, William McHenry is a, a fantastic example of somebody who, you know, set out to make whiskey and does make whiskey and thought, well, you know, the same thing. I will make some gin while I'm waiting um, and actually really loved, um, you know, the gin making process and said it, you know, it really allows him to be, you know, super creative. Um, and yes, he's waiting for his whiskey to mature, but um, he was he was quite surprised about how much he, he fell in love with that whole process. So, yeah, there's there are different um, people and, you know, different distillers and different focuses. And I think that's, you know, I think that's fine. But for me personally, I sometimes think you do get a different a different style of gin uh, when somebody, you know, that is their 100% focus. What styles of gin are currently getting you excited in Australia? All sorts of gins. Um, I don't think there's necessarily one single Australian style. Yeah, I could be proved wrong as, as it evolves. Um, I'm just excited in general, just when I think, oh, you know, I, I've kind of, I kind of know where it's going. A tiny little distillery will pop up and just really make me think. So an example from one of my top 10 gins of 2020 is Moontide Distillery in Broome. If you told me that I would, you know, taste a gin that had mango in it without kind of crying because it was a flavoured gin, I wouldn't believe you. But what they've done is so clever and so subtle and nuanced that, you know, again, it's just super, super clever. And I think that's what I'm noticing more is that there's just a a sort of a great wealth of knowledge and people experimenting with different botanicals and, yeah, just producing something exciting in general. I think one of the kind of exciting subcategories we've seen, you mentioned Bloody Shiraz gin just before, and I think that kind of hybrid of um, wine gin is, is quite an interesting emerging subcategory as well. I mean, it is beautiful. It makes it makes sense. You know, we're we're a wine nation and if anyone can do it, it's us, really. And I think, you know, there is there is a wealth. So, you know, Sepplesfield Road Distillers have got their semi-gin. You know, there are other ones. I think Fosse's Gin are doing one with a um, maybe a Sauvignon or a Semignac grape. I think that really does give something that is completely different to anything else that you'll see globally, those sort of gin-wine hybrids. And there are some that are really, um, really well done. And it is when I'm having conversations with my sort of, you know, peers overseas, it is something that, you know, they really like and they can really see that that's, uh, that's something that is truly uh, special to us. What about from the standpoint of local botanicals? Lemon myrtle, pepperberry, what else have we got? Lemon myrtle and Tasmanian pepperberry. I would say that those distillers who are you know, really kind of focusing on Australian natives, use those two. Having said that, never, never, um, those are the two Australian botanicals they use in their gin. Those are the two the two big ones. And then there's everything in between. What I'm noticing more, though, is people sort of investigating further. So lemon myrtle was a really obvious one because, you know, it's such a, a citrus bomb. So people were kind of like veering towards that. But I feel as time has gone on, people are sort of more exploring things like lemon scented gum and, you know, other sort of citrus vibes within the native botanicals that aren't as kind of in your face would I say. So I think that's the, that's the thing. And I think distillers are just getting out there and learning more and more and more about the different, we haven't even touched the surface as far as 
um, you know, native botanicals are concerned. I mean, there's 16,000 plants here that don't grow anywhere else in the world. So we're just scratching the surface. With all of that, is there sort of a Australian dry gin style with local botanicals or is it not really settled down enough yet to see where it's all going to go? I don't think there will be a signature style. I think um, what I'm noticing is there's kind of three broad sort of areas. So there are those people who really want to sort of pay homage to the the classic, um, you know, London dry style. So, you know, Melbourne Gin Company, um, Never Never, uh, being two moors in Erina in New South Wales. So they are dialing back the use of Australian natives because they want to produce something that's very, very classic. Then you have kind of the middle ground where people want to... Um, make a classic gin and they will use one or two native botanicals. Um, and then you have the sort of other end where people only want to use native botanicals. So it and it might be that a distiller produces a classic London dry and then also produces something that's super native and, you know, super bushy. So, um, you know, uh, Sasha LaForgia from Adelaide Hills, you know, he's got his classic and then he's sort of pushed into the to the realms of, you know, natives with things like his sunset gin and his desert gin, where he can really sort of explore those, um, you know, those native botanicals more fully. When I first started this show, the second ever episode I did, it was an interview with Fairfax Hall from Sipsmith. And he had a, a quality rant about how he was frustrated with the number of products out on the market labelled gin that weren't juniper forward enough. They weren't staying true to the heritage and the classification of gin. There is a danger at the same time now that as each new distillery launches and creates another gin brand, they're clutching at what is going to define my gin brand, what's going to make it different. And because there's so many other ones on the market and so many other distilleries that preceded them, they're trying to define it by putting even more weird, wonderful local botanicals that no one has ever thought of before to, uh, to put in there. And then the danger is that actually that starts not to taste very much like gin. Where do you stand on that? Are you seeing much of that happening at the moment? Yeah, there's a, there's a few points. I'm obsessed with, with London Dry. Sip Smith is, you know, one of my top tens. But I think from the kind of new gin wave. So if you think really we have things like Bombay Sapphire and Hendrix, which was sort of, you know, the 90s, they really, you know, Hendrix in particular really kind of ignited the, um, you know, the gin renaissance and people really sort of changing their mind about what what gin was and what gin could be. Um, you know, everyone had had experiences on Gordon's, you know, Gordon's being the back of your nan's cupboard and being super juniper, juniper forward. And Bombay with its subtle, you know, floral, um, very, very light notes. And then Hendrix being, again, not particularly juniper forward with those cucumber and rose essences. I think it changed people's minds about what gin could be. And then you have things like aviation gin from the US. When that was developed by um, Ryan McGarrian, the, the bartender, he didn't want something that was super juniper forward. He actually described his gin as being made from a democracy of botanicals. So yes, juniper was there, but they, it was it was on a level playing field to other botanicals. And I think, you know, again, that kind of new world 
contemporary gin kind of evolved where people were kind of like, well, yeah, juniper needs to be in there because otherwise it's definitely not gin. But what else can we do? Uh, what else can we do with it? What else? What other botanicals can we put in there? So I think I'm very firm about what is gin and what is not gin. You know, it has to be, uh, there has to be juniper in there. It has to be over 37.5% ABV if you're following EU, which the EU regs seem to be followed by most of the Australian distillers. I'm very clear about what gin is and what it isn't. You know, I'd put a question mark over a lot of the um, pink gins or the flavoured gins that are coming out because they are labelled gin, but the majority are are gin liqueurs um, because they're around 20, 25% ABV. So I agree with Fairfax on, on, on some levels, but I think there is room for that contemporary style for people who just don't like that, you know, juniper punch, punch in the face. And I guess really, you know, how much juniper is enough is a pretty subjective sort of conversation as well. Well, I'd like to, I like to be able to taste it. If it's yeah. there, you know, if it's, you know, whatever else is in the recipe, I have to be able to taste the juniper you know, whether it's, it's you know, really bold and piney or whether it's, you know, just subtly there in the background. But there is, a, there is a percentage of people who are, and I'm not necessarily pointing the finger at anyone in Australia, but there are definitely things that are coming to market with gin on the label um, that are not gin, that people are just seeing the, a marketing opportunity, knowing that gin is selling and, you know, slapping gin on the label and, you know, hoping to make some money. You've obviously got a, a lot of contacts in the UK. And last year you were named Gin Communicator of the Year at the Icons of Gin Awards. Congratulations for that one. Thank you. That was a... <laughs> I didn't even know I'd been nominated. So, um, yeah, it was quite funny. I was I was messaged by my good friend David T. Smith from Summerfruit Cup in the UK. He just messaged me a picture of, you know, the list of names. And I was, you know, staggered. And then two seconds later, I got another message saying that I'd won. And so, yeah, it was, you know, obviously very, very exciting. And I was very honoured because I really, you know, I really rate that organisation. And then obviously to um, be amongst so many Australian brands that did well. So, Sasha LaForgia from Adelaide Hills won Distiller of the Year. You know, the Barbershop Bar in Sydney won Gin Bar of the Year. Um, we had Kate Byron, Brookies Gin, they won Sustainable Distiller of the Year. And I think Dave Withers from Archie Rose won um, Master Blender of the Year. So it was, it was you know, a, you know, massive hit for Australian gins um, that night. And it was just, yeah, it was just so exciting to be a small part of that. And then we have, you know, the achievements of Four Pillars, in the last couple of years, there really is something pretty special happening here oh, with absolutely. gin, isn't They've there, in Australia? Oh, absolutely. They've just won uh, for the second year in a row um, International Wine and Spirits Competition, uh, International Gin Producer of the Year. I mean, they were blown away to win it in, in 2019 and absolutely did not expect to do back-to-back. Um, so I think we, you know, we are very well regarded. People don't necessarily always understand our gins. I did some judging with some international judges just recently for the World Gin Awards. Um, and when we came to the Australian uh, contemporary uh, category, um, it's quite interesting because a lot of them don't necessarily know what they're tasting in terms of flavour and, and where that flavour comes from. Uh, so it's very exciting for me to be able to say, well, that's this is what you're tasting and that's this botanical. Um, and yeah, they're just really excited. And we kind of have that Australian way of just giving it a red hot go. 
Do you get any feedback from them on, you know, what, what kind of things do they say about those flavours? There's just nothing like it. But I get, you know, messages all the time saying, you know, where can we get this? Things like the um, Four Pillars collaboration with Kyoto uh, Gin and, you know, Never Never Gin Ash. I did actually try, I did actually send a few samples um, to friends overseas because, you know, they're just really excited. I think particularly in the UK where there is now a trend towards very, very flavoured gins, it's actually quite exciting to see, um, you know, a gin style that, that's so removed from that in Australia. Back in season two of the podcast, you heard Beefeater Gin's veteran master distiller Desmond Payne giving us his thoughts on some of the Australian botanicals. I think it kind of restricts it to a local market or it has the danger of doing that. Uh, because internationally, people are not necessarily used to those uh, flavours. I saw a lot of pepperberry around, for example, um, lemon myrtle. These are quite, quite strong flavours. So it's fine, it's great to use them, but for me, just, it's a delicate touch. It's an opinion echoed by Caroline, based on her experiences tasting Australian gins. Oh, 100%. I completely, I mean, I would say, you know, lemon myrtle needs to be put in a tea bag and just waved over the still. You know, if you think, <laughs> if, if you think you've put too little in there, take some more away. There are definitely, um, some botanicals that are just so overpowering, but they're also just so, you know, wonderful to work with. Now, maybe we can run through your top gins of 2020. You should already be familiar with three of the distillers in Caroline's top 10 Adelaide Hills, Four Pillars, and Applewood have all previously featured on this podcast. So let's run through Caroline's other selections, starting with Just Juniper, a new gin from Earp Distilling in New South Wales. Really good. So Earp Distilling Co, um, is that, are they a 2020 startup? Or no, actually I can see you've said they were on your 2019 list as well. Their number eight dry gin, which was their first release, actually made my 2019 list. Yeah, I just really love what they do. The Just Juniper is just right up my street you know it is just gin um so yeah and they're they're great they're actually using a, a different style of distilling in the sense that we've all got very very used to those big beautiful copper stills and they're actually using a sort of a new style of still called an ice still which looks a little bit more industrial and a little less romantic but gives you great, you know, a great deal of control, um, and you know they're making their gins on there. So it's really interesting to see another another style of still being used. I'm obviously very familiar with Applewood, but another name, Turner Stillhouse, that was a new one for me. Yeah, I mean they're very. Um, Justin is very sort of humble. Justin and Brett, they're very humble. They haven't kind of really, you know, pushed themselves forward too much. But again, they were one of only, you know, ten. Uh, Australian gins to receive a gold medal from the International Wine and Spirits Competition in London this year. And again, very clever what he's done. If you said to me, oh, you, you know, you'll like this gin because it's got rose in it, I would have said no because I don't like floral gins. Um, but how he's, how he's achieved that um, is absolutely amazing. Very, very well done. St. Felix, they're from Melbourne. They? Yeah, they're from Melbourne. I mean, they've taken over, um, I think it was an old kind of, uh, auto uh, garage in um, Mordialic down by me. Xavier is from the Mornington Peninsula. I think he's, his background is a chef. Um, he's worked closely with Orlando Marzo, who obviously is very well known as um, world-class bartender of the year 
I think that was 2018, uh, very well known, started Melbourne Cocktail Week. So he worked with him. And what I really enjoyed about this particular gin was they took a different approach to what an Australian gin was. They, you know, looked around you know, being Australian means lots of different things. You know, we have a huge Italian community. We have a huge Greek community. And that's kind of where they, um, you know, the direction that they took um, the gin in. So they're actually using, um, you know, mastic gum, uh, which is a, a Greek gum to embolden the, the juniper flavours. And then obviously things like rosemary and bay leaf are very sort of Mediterranean style. So, yeah, really well done. Another recent startup, I think um, you said, you described them as the baby of the group having only launched a month ago, uh, which is Tara on the New South Wales south coast, I think. Yeah, they, again, they've got a great story because of the, the different backgrounds of the, the distillers. So they've used, um, you know, botanicals um, that are native, so pepper leaf, macadamia, lemon myrtle, and then they've picked out uh, rowan berry and heather, which is a nod to um, two of the distillers, Irish heritage and then Newfoundland savory for one of the other business partners who's from Newfoundland. So I was a bit like, oh my God, this is going to be, um, you know, way too much. Um, but it's just beautifully, beautifully soft. And everyone that I've spoken to has, who've tried it and they've tried it at various gym festivals is blown away by the, by the softness. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just a really lovely, lovely drink. Nort distilling dry gin that's n-a-u-g-h-t i mean they they are fairly recent startup as well aren't they? yeah they launched just before christmas i think covid kind of slowed them slowed them down a little but i think that you know they are um sort of pushing forward i spoke to chris um a couple of days ago the the distiller and i think their new distillery is going to be opening in February. It's just the fit out's not quite finished. Um, so that's based in Eltham in, um, just outside Melbourne. And that's just going to be a really exciting destination venue where you can go and drink and, you know, drink at the bar and sit outside. And yeah, really, really, really nice gin and, you know, beautiful setting. Coming out of Queensland, we have Sunshine and Sons, another name completely new to me. <laughs> Another really, um, another really clever one where you think it's going to be something so, so different when you read. That's what I find really interesting is when I read the, the list of botanicals and I think, oh, how, how is this going to work? Um, you know, they've used pomegranate seed, they've used organic rose petals and, you know, and lavender flowers. Um, but it's just, it, it really sums up. They're, they're located right near the big pineapple and it just really um, gives that sense of place. It's kind of juicy and fruity, but it's not sweet. Um, I actually put it with soda water to just really let those botanicals kind of come to the fore and, yeah, definitely one to drink on a really scorching day. The last one that uh, I wasn't familiar with, you just mentioned them earlier on, which was Moontide Distillery with White Pearl Gin. Yeah, I mean, they're using, um, you know, locally sourced. Um, so again, talking about botanicals, both of these I had no knowledge of at all. So they're using kakadu plum, which obviously I, I knew, but the white berry bush, I had no, I had no knowledge of at all. Um, then obviously they're using the classics like juniper coriander, but then they're using mango, tamarind and sandalwood, which if you read on the page, you kind of think, how is this, how is this going to work? Um, but it's so well done. You know, you can actually smell, uh, you know, really subtle mango on the nose. 
And then you get this kind of rich fruit flavours from the kakadu plum and the white berry bush, slightly sweet. But then, you, you know, the tamarind and the sandalwood kind of really cut through that. So you get that kind of spicy, um, you know, warmth on the finish. Cool. Well, they were the names that I wasn't familiar with. And I think of the 10, I can see, as I mentioned before, there's Applewood in there, Adelaide Hills, Four Pillars, those three we've all we've had on the podcast before. So they should already be familiar to Drinks Adventures listeners. Now, it sort of sounds like you're, you know, super bullish and optimistic on, you know, how the industry is tracking at the moment. Are there any kind of issues that are concerning you at the moment? I don't think so. I think, you know, people always say, when's the bubble going to burst? And that question has been circulating since I started doing what I was doing in 2013. You know, how can people possibly want more gin? I don't have any concerns for the industry itself, but I'm mindful of the fact that, you know, we are, we all have the attention spans of goldfish. So we see a new gin and we rush out to get it straight away. I would be interested to know how many people go back and buy a second bottle of that gin um, or do they just move on to the next thing? So I think from a distiller's perspective, you know, trying to make sure that, you know, you are the gin that comes, that people keep returning to. I'm actually doing, um, you know, I'm actually doing a survey at the moment with consumers to ask those type of questions that, you know, what is driving your purchasing decision? And, you know, do you regularly go back? Because I think that is, you know, something that distillers have to be really mindful of um, to to sustain their business. Um, The business is definitely changing. Um, You know, we're seeing those big global kind of successes from people like Four Pillars, but also Manly Spirits are, are moving overseas, never, never. Um, and I think there are, you know, people who aspire to that. And that's fantastic. Um, but I think there are lots of, you know, lots of distillers in between. Not every distiller has to have international ambitions, I guess. Yeah, I think people are always concerned. But I think, you know, there is a range. There are people who want to be, you know, the distillery in their hometown. There are people who, you know, want to set up, um, you know, a tourist opportunity for people. There are people who want to collaborate with um, wineries and make something you know really special that people can go and go and visit. So I'm not um, I'm not concerned for the industry in general because it's just a question that's constantly asked. How can you constantly you know how can you keep producing new gins? Um, but my concern for distillers would be well, how many people are coming back to buy a second or third bottle? You know, I know from, you know, working, you know, doing Junipalooza for the years that I have, people, you know, gravitate towards the new. So, yeah, I think, you know, that would be my, you know, concern for, not concern, but, you know, that would be my question to to distillers. I think one of the things that I always bang on about as well is the kind of regulation. And I know um, a lot of people, a lot of distillers will disagree with me on this. We're in a, a good position in the sense that Australian distillers, on the whole, I think actually 99.99% of them follow the EU regulations around gin, which is, you know, it has to have juniper in it. Um, you know, it has to be 37.5% ABV as the two sort of main ones. I mean, obviously, there are other regulations that go within that, which is you can't add anything after distillation. To be, This is the London dry model, I should say. Um, and all the botanicals must be distilled together. Well, two out of four, I think Australian distillers do on the main. But if we have no, um, we have no real regulations in Australia. If you look at the the food standards 
regulation around potted spirits and they lump everything in together. So whiskey, rum, brandy, it's like basically if it smells like gin and it tastes like gin, then it is gin. And, you know, there is an argument for that. And I know there are lots of distillers who would completely disagree with me and say, you know, if we introduce regulation, um, then we will um, sort of, you know, constrain distillers and we won't have as much innovation. Like, would there ever be a, a bloody Shiraz gin if that happened? Um, but yeah, I just like to see a little bit more just subtle things, um, you know, like the way we say, you know, whiskey and rum has to be, um, you know, aged for two years in Australia before you're allowed to call it a whiskey or rum. So nothing like too restrictive, but just some, um, you know, some basic guidelines would be great. Well, Caroline, thanks so much for your time on the show and schooling me and schooling everyone else on some of the hottest new gins that are out there at the moment. You're welcome. The Drinks Adventures podcast is produced by me, James Atkinson, with additional production and mixing by Dave Robertson. You can find complete transcripts, links, and other information on the show at drinksadventures.com.au. You can follow me on all social media platforms at by James Atkinson. Like my Facebook page, James Atkinson Drinks Adventures, to be kept informed of podcast giveaways and other news about the show. The Drinks Adventures podcast needs your support as listeners. Please do us a favour and leave an honest review and rating for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. We love hearing your feedback and it helps inform other people this is a show worth listening to. Or simply drop us a line at hello at drinksadventures.com.au.